Um, yep. Bible wants to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 17 through 20 tonight. Galatians 4, 17 through 20, and the message entitled, A Jealous Hearted Father. Paul is um, a broken hearted father for his children. He's made his appeal out of love between Paul and in the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. Paul contrasted the love relationship between himself and the Galatians before and after, as we've seen in verse 12 to 16. So Paul continues in his appeal of love, but now as a jealous-hearted father who is seeking to reason with his children for their good, seeing they have been taken by deceivers. Paul now contrasts the love of the Judaizers and himself for the Galatians from verse 17 to 20. As you know, the Old Testament teaches that God is a jealous God, and his name is Jealous. But his jealousy is selfless, seeking only the good of his children, not willing to have his children corrupted or deceived by others or themselves. Exodus 34, 14. And so here in our text, Paul appeals, it's the appeal of love as a jealous heart, hearted father, as we said, for their good. And he's contrasting the Judaizers' love and his for the Galatians. It's characterized by three things. Let me read here verse 17 on down to 20. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing, always. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. And so the contrasting love of the Judaizers and the love of Paul for the Galatians is characterized by the following. First, we have Paul's fatherly appeal to identify the Judaizers' perverted zeal in verse 17. Secondly, you have Paul's fatherly appeal to encourage the Galatians' unprofitable zeal. And then thirdly, Paul's Follow the appeal to indicate his parental zeal, verse 19 and 20. So we begin with Paul's fatherly appeal was to identify the Judaizers' perverted zeal in verse 17. Notice the apostle declares that the Judaizers were zealous uh, and zealously courting them, the Galatians, with bad intentions. Now, if you're a father, you know you're very protective about your daughters. When that young man comes and says, you know, can I take her out? Really? Well, this is Paul. This is the bride of Christ. They zealously court you, but for no good. And so Paul admitted that the Judaizers had a passion for them. The key word in his passage is zealous. The word appears two times in verse 17 and 18. The phrase zealously courts you in the Greek means to burn with zeal, either jealously or a proper fervent or eager desire. The context will determine whether it's good or evil. Here it's for evil. So the word was used in a language of love, friendships, to mean take a person's personal interest in or to court another's favor. So the word appears 12 times in the New Testament. In Acts 17.5, the word is used in a bad sense of being heated or boiled over with envy by the Jews against the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 12, 31, the word is used for pursuing what is good 
and that which benefits others, like the gifts of the Spirit. And so notice Paul unveiled the kind of passion the Judaizers had. It was not for their good. And so the word good there, kalos, we've seen it before, means that which is right, beautiful, excellent, honorable, and commendable. This word appears three times, once in this verse and as an adverb, and in the next verse twice as adjectives. So the word in this verse is in the negative, for no good. Paul just asked the Galatians if he had become their enemy for telling them the truth in verse 16. Paul here is stating they are your real enemies, courting you deceptively. The Judaizers saw the liberty of the Galatians in Christ and they wanted to bring them under the bondage of the laws we've seen as those in Antioch in Galatians 2, 4, and 5 where they were telling the Gentiles they had to be circumcised and, and, and maintain the rituals of the, the Judaistic law. So the Judaizers were flattering the Galatians to gain their trust and confidence to keep them from obeying the truth. Just as a young man would flatter and, and just compliment a girl to reach his end and keep her from really knowing the truth that he's only interested in going to bed with her. It's hidden. It's an agenda. The same thing. Galatians 5, 7 says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The Judaizers were passing themselves off as messengers of God when in fact they were messengers in the flesh representing a different gospel. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you, he tells them in chapter 5, verse 8. And so notice, still in verse 17, the apostle Paul declared the Judaizers were indoctrinating the Galatians in order that they be devoted to them. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them, the Judaizers. Paul described the method of the Judaizers. Yes, they want to exclude you. The word exclude means to shut out in the present tense in progress. The idea being to prevent the approach of one by placing a barrier. They don't want Paul telling the truth. The word appears one other time for one's justification by faith in Christ alone in chapter 3, verse 27 of Romans, where it says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. In other words, it's not permitted. So Paul was saying that these Judaizers wanted to shut up and prevent the Galatians from two things. First, the gospel of grace that set them free by turning them to the law, and secondly, that the apostle Paul's influence by discrediting him as an apostle. That's their goal. Notice there, towards the end of 17, Paul declared the motive of the Judaizers, that you may be zealous for them. The goal of the Judaizers was to have the Galatians burning with zeal, passionately for them. They wanted to make some disciples of Judaism. Remember, this is the same word in the first part of the verse. These Judaizers wanted the Galatians to be their disciples dedicated to the law of Moses. These Judaizers didn't want the Galatians to be like Christ, but wanted them to be earnestly designed to be like them. Galatians 4.19 the whole gospel is for us to be Christ-like. John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. That's what Christian means, Christ-like. 
The Judaizers didn't want the Galatians to glory in Christ but in themselves. In chapter 6, verse 13, when we get there, it says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. It's a notch on their belt. As you know, Jesus in his rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees illustrates the perverted zeal of these Judaizers in Matthew 23, 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea and win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Wow. Their courtship was evil as that of the young man who courts a young lady with bad intentions. Be careful of um, individuals who want or would come alongside you in or outside the church who would flatter you and are eager to introduce you to a new or greater truth by twisting the gospel. It happens all the time. Paul in Romans 16, 18 says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions among you and, uh, and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. We're just talking in Proverbs about the simple person, right? He's talking to believers, too. In 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, it says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received. Or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You were well put up with it. He's rebuking the Corinthians. For also paying attention to the Judaizers. He's talking to Christians about not being deceived, he even makes the illustration of, of Eve in the garden. Be careful of those who would try to exclude or shut you out from your place of fellowship and feeding by slandering the pastor or the church who is feeding you. Be careful of the people who are always chasing the Holy Spirit from the latest church or the biggest church or the flashiest entertainment. You know, you whipped cream tastes good, but it can't nourish you. You need wheat. You need the Word of God. Paul to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13 says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul acknowledges and, and honors and respects the people that God has called and anointed. He never tells them to worship the pastor, and we're not to do that. But to recognize who the pastor is, and are they feeding the flock, and are they doing the work of a shepherd? Very, very important. In Hebrews 13, 7 and 17, he said, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, those uh, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. He's talking to the Hebrews who are thinking of going back. They're going back to animal sacrifices. He says, hey, listen, think through it. Be careful of those who desire to make you like them rather than Jesus. 
Ephesians 4.13 says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. No one else. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The entire body of Christ is Christ-like. We differ in positions and calling and gifts, but we're all the bride of Christ. We've all come the same way through the same gospel, all of us. So Paul's fatherly appeal was to identify the Judaizers' perverted zeal. Very important. And it's hard sometimes because people don't see it. Maybe they're young or maybe they've been so deceived that they, they, they don't see it there. And you have, you're fighting for them. You're fighting for their stand in Christ Jesus. A lot of deceivers going on. Notice secondly in verse 18, Paul's fatherly appeal was to encourage the Galatians now in profitable zeal. Zeal is good as long as it's good. Here in 18, the Apostle Paul declared the Galatians should be zealous in what is profitable. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. Paul makes the sharp contrast between bad zeal and, of the Judaizers and the zeal that is proper and beneficial uh, by the word here. But, contrasting conjunction, he was saying that there was nothing wrong with their honorable zeal for the good of others in fellowship. He was saying that their zeal for others was no problem, but it should not be after the example of the Judaizers, nor should they allow themselves to be dishonored. He had no objections for their desire to seek eagerly good or excellent fellowship. Nothing wrong with that. People sometimes tell me, you know, we went with these people over here, we went to see this, went to that. I don't say, don't go there. You guys have to make decisions where you go, who you hang out with, <laughs> to make sure you're able to walk through life and be able to discern good from evil, good doctrine from bad doctrine. It's part of growing up. And so Paul gives the extent they were to be zealous always, not only when it benefited self, not just when one wants to win someone over, not that Paul wanted to stand in their way, but to direct their way for good. Nothing but what is motivated from the love of Christ and focused on the truth of the gospel will result in good, honorable fellowship. Very important. Sometimes Christians get caught up with their feelings, their emotions, and what they see. And they fall into the same trap inside the church that they did outside in the world. The flashiness, the, the, the popularity, the, the way people talk and whatever it may be. And, and they get sucked in too. Notice in 18, the second half, the Apostle Paul declared the Galatians should not limit their zeal for what is profitable. Only when he was with them. So he doesn't want to give them the idea that he wants to control them, micromanage them or overprotect them. He says, and not only when I was present with you. Paul was not attempting to make disciples after himself. He had preached Christ Jesus crucified along with Barnabas and the Galatians were zealous towards them. Acts 13 tells us. He was not attempting to exclude or prohibit them from gathering with other Christians, only those trying to corrupt them and the gospel. And I warn you many times about certain things that are very important within the Christian body as Calvinism or Reformed theology, very dangerous. Something that's very important. Now, the gifts of the Spirit or other things that we look at, if you don't believe they're for today, you're just going to miss out. But when you're dealing with the aspect of Reformed theology, that's very, very, very critical. So you need to understand what's going on and when people teach that. It sounds good, 
reasonably, logically, but biblically, completely wrong heresy. Very, very important. But see, no one wants to be unliked. Nobody wants to take a stand alone. If you cannot take a stand alone, you have no right to stand with anybody else regarding anything. You must first learn to stand alone. Then we can stand together. Then it has meaning and power. And so, when Paul said in verse 12, the second part, I urge you to become like me. He meant without dependency on the law, but in Christ. Now, they take that out of context, then they make us say something that it isn't saying. So you got to be careful. Paul knew that others could equally teach Christ and nourish the Galatians. He knew Jesus would raise up teachers and teach the saints in the church. He knew the church belonged to Christ. I am overjoyed of what God has done here through the years, the number of, of teachers that, that God has raised up here through the years, men's studies and the women's studies and the various things. It's, it's amazing. God is so good. And I'm not saying, well, they can't teach you. God raises people up and they prove themselves and God uses them and we rejoice in Christ. But we're all in agreement with what the Bible teaches. We're one in doctrine. Very, very important. We've all seen homes where a father and mother have two different philosophies of life. One's a Christian, the other one isn't. That house is divided. That house is turmoil. That house is not reaping the best in joy or anything else. And it brings more confusion to the children than any resolution. The same happens in churches. Paul was not um, possessive or insecure about himself or his ministry. Remember, he had died on the road to Damascus where he met Christ. Fifty years this May or July, I died. 50 years ago when I accepted Christ. And I've been dying every day. I have to remember, remind myself that I'm dead. That my whole life is dead. From day to day making those choices. He had no desire for people to look to him. But Jesus, Paul was not a one-man show as you know. If you read the epistles of Paul, you, when you come to the end of the letter, the, the, the number of names that he names and the greetings and the commendations and all. Amazing. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5, as we're going through it, this illustrates our point. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. A passion for him and him alone and a oneness of unification with those who love the Lord the same way. That's what binds us together. His love and his doctrine. Today the thing is by the progressives and the emergent church, well let's just love one another. Let's not fight over doctrine. No, let's fight. You can't separate doctrine from love. That love is agape love. It's pure love that can only be confirmed by doctrine. What you believe the important doctrines of the Bible. As believers, we must always be zealous in things that are good in nature and character for life. 
In Philippians 4, 8, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are a good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And as you walk through life and as you, uh, you take one day at a time and, uh, and when you first are born again, you, you're close to the world, your mind is there and your new nature and there's warfare and you need to discipline your mind to bring your thoughts captive, to, to talk to the Lord, to ask the Lord to strengthen you and you, you worship the Lord and you thank him and, and, and Lord, bring my thoughts in captivity and you do that warfare on and on and on every day. That commitment and you become an aged saint. <laughs> All the battle scars. Your armors, if you can only see how beat up it is through the years. And here you stand, still worshiping the Lord, still honoring, still seeking Him. That's incredible. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 22 says, For now... We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort them faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both yourself and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Wow! Packed out. The Spirit of God just filling Paul, directing his words, writing these letters for the church for the next 2,000 years so far. <laughs> Every generation, whatever nation, whatever race, whatever culture, doesn't matter. The gospel transcends culture. It's more powerful. In 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, he says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives an opportunity for each person to examine their life. Are these things in my life, are they abounding? Are, am I cultivating them? Am I working on these things? Am I asking God to fill me with these things? As believers, we will be indebted to many men who will help us grow in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3 through 9, Paul says, For you are still carnal. Talking to the Corinthians. For where there are Envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? But one says, I'm a Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who's Apollos? But ministers through whom you believe, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so the different callings, the different gifts. But it's God working through each individual. Important. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7 and 15, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you to differ from another, and what do you have that you have not received? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. 
For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. And so Paul is laying out to them. God administers his church to the different people that he calls and everything, but he's dealing with this deception of the Judaizers even there. And their exaltation towards that and there's carnality in their viewpoint really being against the gospel. So Paul's fatherly appeal was to encourage the Galatians in profitable zeal. Nothing wrong with that. Notice 30 here in verse 19 and 20. Paul's fatherly appeal was to indicate his parental seal. He was their spiritual father. He's just indicated that here to the Corinthians. Notice Paul here, the apostle in verse 19, reminded the Galatians they were his spiritual children. My little children, he says. Remember, Paul had come to them to preach Christ. He was physically ill, he told us in verse 13. Paul was received as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus, by them in verse 14. The phrase, my little children here, technion, describes an infant or a little child. The term is one of endearment and deep affection. It's a diminutive. If you know Spanish, anytime you add an ito ito at the end of a word, it makes it endearment and diminutive also. If your name is, let's say, Miguel, you say Miguelito. Well, he may be six foot tall. When he's using that phrase, it's endearment, not that he's little. But when you're saying a little kid, it's probably both size and endearment. So this is what the phrase here, it's endearment. Paul loved the Galatians. The term is used nine times in the New Testament. Eight by John, one by Paul. Technion. Notice the apostle Paul related to the Galatians his anguish over them as a father would. Paul is very disturbed. He's very concerned about them. He's not just spouting off a letter intellectually to a secretary. Paul was communicating to the Galatians the turmoil he was going through by their turning to the law and the Judaizers. He says, for whom I labor in birth again. The picture of pain, agony, to make sure that life comes forth. He painted a picture for them as a mother giving birth to a child, a common metaphor in scripture, often. The phrase, I labor in birth, refers to the experience of pains during labor for a child. Now, if you were in the labor room with your wife, the delivery room, you got a little better appreciation of your wife. The first thing you said is, thank God you didn't make me a woman. It's not an easy thing. If it was up to men to have kids, there would only be one kid per family, I guarantee you. And so Paul describes himself as a nursing mother in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. He painted, painted here a picture for them of affliction and pain. Paul says again, don't miss that word, which means anew and implies as at the first time when he preached to them. The clear understanding was that they were in the process of defecting from Christ. If they couldn't deflect, what's the agony? Why the illustration? It would make no sense. Paul was communicating to the Galatians this turmoil would not stop until they returned to Christ. Until Christ is formed in you, he says. Notice that. 
The term form is a verb and means to take on likeness in the aorist completed form. The word is still related to Paul's labor for them, describing the process by which a fetus develops into an infant. The reference is to the process of their spiritual life. This particular word appears only this time in the New Testament. Nowhere else. The apostle could not see the effects of Christ in them due to their choices. The context is into Christ's likeness after the character and nature of Jesus being conformed and transformed by the Holy Spirit that he told them in chapter 3, verse 2. An outward manifestation reflecting the inner reality of Christ in them, the hope of glory. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3, 10, 11, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ in, in, is all in all. Everything is done away with in Christ. Everything is made Christ-like. There's no distinction. There's no division. There's no exaltation of one against another. So look at 20. The Apostle Paul revealed to the Galatians his heart desire here. Paul expressed his heart passion for them. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone. He would like to be present with them at that moment. The word wish there means his will or desire, but unobtainable at this point. For whatever reason, Paul was unable to make that trip. The Judaizers had come to Antioch after Paul's first missionary journey and taught the Gentiles had to be circumcised to be saved, and Paul and others went to Jerusalem to settle the problem. That's where you get it in Acts 15, the First Church Council. He wished that in his presence, notice, he would be able to change his strong tone of warning into a more gentle one from letters to a live voice. The present danger moved Paul to respond as a very protective father here. The present emotional distress in Paul was because he loved them, not because he hated them, not because he wanted to overprotect them. He wanted them to live for Christ and Christ alone. Though notice Paul expressed his heart of concern for them, for I have doubts about you. Very, very painful words for Paul to speak. Very painful words for a father to speak directly to a son or a daughter in such fashion because of the deception or whatever is going on. But the motivation behind that is love for them. He was perplexed about their condition. The term I have doubts is a compound word. Poros, a transit, a way, and it's in the negative. And it means to be without a way or path, literally to be at one's wit's end. He at that moment could not find which way to turn. The deception was in progress. The hope was that they would turn to Christ again. The concern of Paul was not what they thought of him, but what they thought of Christ. That's important. Too many parents are more concerned what their children think about them than being responsible parents. And so they never confront their children. Shame on them. Parental zeal by Paul was 
to spend and to be spent for them, as he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 14 through 15. I will more than gladly be spent and be spent for your food. But the more I love you, the less I be loved, he tells them. If you're a parent, you know exactly what he's talking about. That's what's going on here in Galatians. Hmm. The pastor's parental zeal for others who has spiritually led to Christ should be natural and of great concern when they are in spiritual danger. Again, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or with wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As you read the letters of Paul, he is just such an incredible vessel of God to keep himself clear of any obstruction or contamination and to always be transparent and would rather suffer the ill understanding or accusation rather than to bring attention to him and always point people back to Christ. In 1 Corinthians one twenty one, he says, What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love in the spirit of gentleness? You choose. Father tells the son, you want, you, you want to be restricted or, 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 or you want to have your freedom? What do you want to do? It's an appeal of love. You're, you're looking for the right answer. Second Corinthians 2, 1 through 4 says, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes you glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So what I did and what I called out about turning that young man over to Satan was not because I hate him and not because I don't love you. It's because I do love you and I'm looking for your obedience and your discipline in the conduct of the church. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you as letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not within, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So though he acknowledges that they've come to Christ, they're born again, he's still dealing with them with this deception and their carnality. As a faithful father, Again, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians 12 through 13, Paul says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Incredible appeal. The pastor's parental zeal will experience distress and perplexity at times if they're true shepherds. Once again, in 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, Paul says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. 
Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boastful or boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all your tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. And so he describes to them all they went through for them. In that same chapter, verse 8 through 10 and then 12, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, in other words, experience pain. But that your sorrow led you to repentance. That's what he's looking for as a father. Repentance. An acknowledgement of your error, of your wrong. So you get right with God. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. That you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Regret, you don't learn from it, you go do it again. That's the difference. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, the young man that was sleeping with his stepmother, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God, might appear to you. That they see his motive, his love for them. When he gets to 2 Corinthians 12, 19-21, he says again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification for I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you and such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many, who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. He was afraid that God would strike them. He was concerned about them. And 2 Corinthians 13 tells us, Therefore, conclusion, I write these things being absent, Let's be present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given to me for edification and not for destruction. And so he lays it out to them. A broken-hearted father. Paul's fatherly appeal was to indicate the parental zeal here for their good, for their protection. Over and over and over again. This happens all the time, every generation. Whatever God is doing, wherever he's doing it, there's always those three calls to be shepherds and the people that are being called to be saved, but you always have all kinds of forms of deception, distractions, things that go on. And as we grow in Christ, we're to discipline our hearts and our minds to obedience to the word of God, to grow in knowledge, and in maturity. And so Paul's appeal of love as a jealous-hearted father for their good, contrasting the Judaizers' love and his for the Galatians, has been characterized here by Paul's fatherly appeal to identify the Judaizers' perverted zeal. It was for themselves. Secondly, Paul's fatherly appeal to encourage the Galatians Improfitable zeal. Nothing wrong with that. As long as it's biblical, sound doctrine. And thirdly, Paul's fatherly appeal to indicate his parental zeal. 
that they see his love for them. He would do anything. He laid down his life. In fact, he, he did that as he came to Corinth. <laughs> many different ways in, the, in, in many of the letters. And so this is something that's important for believers to understand. God has given us all these epistles in the New Testament, in these letters, in the Gospels, and they have all that we need for godliness and for understanding all that will ever happen in our life and how to deal with those issues, particularly when it's deception that wants to drag you away from Christ, that wants to make you a disciple of whoever it may be rather than Christ. God forbid. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you continue to deal with our hearts, and we thank you for your grace over us, Lord. We pray that you would continue to just cause us to look to you, no one else, and that you may be honored, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins if you're over the Internet. Jesus is God who became man. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. The wrath of the Father was poured upon him. He died in your place. He tasted death for you. And then he rose from the dead and ascended up 40 days later to sit at the right hand of the Father and now remains there as a God-man to hear the repentance of those who see themselves lost through the proclamation of the gospel that he forgive them and make them born again to become more like Christ and to be a, an extension to those who are lost, loved ones, parents, friends, and pull them out of the fire by the grace of God. If you see yourself as a sinner, you want to repent of your sins, this is a very simple prayer. Your prayer to the Lord, not to us. And he's going to forgive you for everything you've ever committed and give you a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit, a new nature. And he wants you to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his word. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.